Welcome to the Consilience Podcast. My name is Shannon Beer and I talk to experts who can help us to overcome our insecurities and support our physical and mental health so that we can get the most out of our lives. So today I am joined by my favourite co-host, Vitamin PhD, who needs no introduction. Hey, Gabby. Hey. (laughs) And we also have a guest with us today, and that is Dr. Mike Albert, who is the co-founder and chief medical officer at Accomplish Health, which is a personalized metabolic wellness center delivering sustainable health, weight loss, and wellness. The way they do that is by combining prescription medications, nutritional therapy, and health coaching. Now, we wanted to have Dr. Albert on the show today to get into like some of the nitty-gritty around navigating helping individuals with obesity and challenging weight stigma at the same time because we have seen a lot of rhetoric around you know are these two mutually exclusive things we can't do them both at the same time or if we do what does that look like and we thought that we could get into a bit of a nuanced conversation today but I thought would be a good place to start off is firstly by asking you why do you do the work that you do wow what a what a profound question um so I think for me as part of my medical training I had the experience and the opportunity to really engage healthcare on many levels. I had a very general medical education and I ended up doing specialization in internal medicine, which gives you a very broad exposure to the health system. And I think for me, there was recurring trends that really were troublesome that I identified. And that is this, we often are very much reactive in the way that we treat people's health problems. Very rarely are we looking further upstream at some of the root causes of a lot of the chronic disease that we experience and try to address those issues or address the sort of societal issues that are structured around it, the social determinants of health, the health inequities. And so um, I, by happenstance, I think, and also because of some of my prior, you know, college experience, which we can talk about if you want to, it's a little bit of a tangent. I came across obesity because many of my patients were dealing with obesity and it's, it was a, a real struggle and it seemed to be something that they all really uh, struggled to deal with. And um, I had some incredible mentors that, that showed, uh, you know, showed me that there is this really emerging science and emerging field of obesity medicine that has illuminated Um, a lot of the scientific underpinnings of obesity and why it's a challenge. And hey, there's a lot of treatment and hope for people. They don't have to be beholden to this, what is a very real disease that can dominate their lives. And um, also I, I felt for a lot of my patients because not only were they struggling with their weight, but also everything that came with it. The, the stigmatization of their weight, how it impacted their family relationships, their friends, their jobs. And, and for me, it was I seeing this opportunity, seeing um, it as being a, a really critical element to make a difference in someone's life and that there were real treatments that could do that. And, and I, I just sort of fell in love with both the patient advocacy side of things, as well as the, the science, the emerging science um, within the field of obesity medicine. And And to me, sort of the rest is history that way. And um, I was fortunate enough to meet someone who was as passionate as myself and my um, co-founder, Jacob Brody. And he uh, was a patient actually living and dealing with weight issues himself. 
and uh, had his life saved. I mean, he'll say it himself, had his life saved by a lot of the, the novel uh, therapeutics and um, really the emerging science. And, and for me, from experience, it was just something I wanted to share with so many other people. And, and so we created this, um, really this company and, and virtual practice that is really trying to scale and mobilize these evidence-based treatments for people in a very, we believe, is comprehensive way. And, and hopefully marrying a lot of the concepts that have been well-established in the field, like nutrition for, you know, people will debate food as medicine, but nutrition to optimize health, you know, wellness, um, physical activity, and then also sort of the biological components that I, I feel very sort of strong and passionate about. So uh, for us, it's about creating a comprehensive solution to people and just getting it in the hands of people that how, who otherwise did not have this opportunity uh, up to this point. So that's really what drives us and is our mission and what we do at Accomplish Health. So what would you say to people who might state that it's not possible to treat obesity and challenge weight stigma at the same time? Um, you know, because you, you've, you have really seen firsthand and by working with, with patients and with your collaborator that um, obesity medicine can save lives. And yet there are voices that would claim that it can be really harmful and, and that by treating it as a disease, that that is uh, intrinsically stigmatizing in, in people uh, who, who are in large bodies. And I know that's a tough nut to crack. That's a really, <laughs> that's a big question, but um, I'd really, I'd like to hear your take. Yeah, that is a big one. Wow. Um, no, so I'll do my best. I think that, that that's a really hard question to answer because a lot of people have very strong feelings. But what I can tell you is, it's my personal opinion that a lot of the narratives that developed around weight, around obesity, developed in a time and during a time where we did not have very effective and safe interventions. And because of that, there were many individuals who do not achieve the types of outcomes they were promised or, you know, did not get the experience they were hoping in terms of changing their health. And that led to a lot of personal sort of guilt and, and, and internalized bias that also perpetuated, I think, societal's view that, hey, people aren't doing this the right way. This should work. Why aren't they getting better? It's clearly the individual's fault. So I think a lot of these narratives developed in that time period where we really didn't understand the science of obesity very well. I, mind you, really the modern interpretation of obesity from a scientific standpoint the, has really developed since the 1990s. So it's very, very modern in term, from a, a scientific historical standpoint. Um, so, and, and really the best treatments that we've had have been developed in the last decade. So a lot of people have lived many lifetimes dealing with that that sort of state of affairs where we didn't have a great understanding, we didn't have a lot of safe and effective treatments. And I think that's what's fueled a lot of these very passionate narratives and, and ultimately stigma related to obesity. Now, the second part of that I think is, is there any benefit in identifying obesity as a disease? What can we do about it? So on and so forth, or is it just all harmful because you're sort of potentially medicalizing it and, and doing that? I think from my standpoint, Obesity is a disease by any definition within sort of a healthcare context or any medical definition, right? We know it leads to health impairment. We know it leads to increased disease prevalence and certain complications. And we know, especially at certain levels, can reduce life expectancy and increase mortality. 
So from those standpoints, um, it certainly qualifies as being a disease. And what is the benefit of doing that? What's the potential harm? Because there are always trade-offs. Um, and first off, this is not my opinion. This has been established and sort of put forward by major medical organizations like the World Health Organization, the American Medical Association, which is the preeminent sort of medical organization for physicians in the United States. So this is a sort of shared interpretation, but I think calling it disease, what does it do? Um, and we can talk about sort of the nuances of the science too and why that, that's important. But calling it disease, I think, deburdens a lot of people from assuming that so much of it is on their shoulders, that the development was so much on them and I think it recognizes that there are factors outside of their control. And if that's the case, and it potentially can affect their health and their trajectory of their health and their quality of life, if there are real treatments that we can provide them and support that we can provide them because there are things outside of their control, well, that's something to consider. And potentially if those treatments are now safe and effective, getting back to my premise, then, then a lot of people can get help that they need not help that was falsely promised to them like we did many years ago, but the help that they actually need now. And frankly, I see it every day. People transform their lives, which is part of the reason I think I've, I was very drawn to it. In medicine, oftentimes, we don't see that payoff for many, many years. So it's sort of a long and slow grind that way. But in obesity medicine, it, it's very rewarding to help people. And in a very short amount of time, people can absolutely change their life. And whether it's increasing their energy levels, decreasing the pain that they experience on a daily basis, proving their risk factors of disease, being able to just do more and live life, I think, more on their terms. It's, it's quite rewarding. It's frankly a privilege. It's been the privilege of mine um, to help, help sort of partner with patients in that journey. I wonder if we could delve a little bit deeper into the concept of weight stigma because I think that people have a general idea of what it means but maybe are less aware of how it actually manifests particularly in light of the research that indicates that stigmatizing attitudes are actually quite prevalent in healthcare you know which you'd think wouldn't be the case and so I wonder if you could kind of explain what weight stigma is and precisely how it affects individuals. Yeah, so stigma is basically, um, and I'm not an expert in this, so, so bear with me. Basically, it is sort of associating um, certain traits in a very negative light, um, and uh, and whether or not that's justified. And, and typically, it's not justified based on the evidence. Um, and the reason that is significant and why stigma is potentially bad is it can have a range of consequences on the individual. The example we give with sort of weight bias and stigma around obesity is this. Um, let's do a little thought experiment. This is, that's, that's very helpful for me. Let's say that it is all a personal failing, right? That it is some, uh, there's a lack of morality involved in sort of the, the realization of weight issues and the person is just failing. Okay, and this is not true, so I will heavily caveat this is not the case, but I think it's an important thought experience. Let's say that's true. What do we accomplish by telling someone that they are a failure by blaming them in their personal failings? What does that accomplish? Well, we know from the literature that it increases mental health issues. We know from the literature that it actually causes adverse health outcomes. We know from the literature, it not only doesn't help people lose weight, people gain weight 
in light of that. So if that is the case, if shaming them, stigmatizing them for something that is a very real condition they struggle with because they didn't receive real treatments and were promised false treatments that are ineffective, if that's true, then what are we really accomplishing? We're not accomplishing much. And I would argue we're ethically doing some very questionable things. And so that's not true, by the way. It's not a person's fault. But, but even operating under that context, I don't know what we accomplish. And so this stigma, the sort of association of, of obesity as being bad and being this personal failing and this immorality, I think does a lot of harm. And we certainly are doing no one benefit from blaming them, from providing a lack of support, and oftentimes putting up barriers to their ability to live life a particular way, live life in a way that I think we would all want to, which is to live it free on your terms. I think there's tremendous data out there, and Dr. Poole has done some of the preeminent work in this space, looking at the level of stigmatization and discrimination that a person living with obesity goes through rivals that of any sort of sex discrimination, racial discrimination that affects all domains of their life, whether it's work compensation, whether it's the ability to access things socially. I mean, every aspect of their life is being impacted and it's been well-documented over decades that we as a society have need, a, need to take responsibility for a lot of what has happened and understand that we're not benefiting anyone and continuing to operate under that context that it is a personal failing. I think that's what I find most frustrating is that even if we're following the false premise that it is a personal failing, even if we did believe that to be the case, which as you mentioned, is certainly not the case, but even following that logic, it still isn't useful to shame and blame people in right. order to quote unquote motivate them to make a change because we know that the shame associated with internalized stigma, shame being a self-conscious emotion, mm -hmm. actually precludes someone from seeking treatment or having, as you say, access to effective interventions that will actually improve their quality of life. Now, we've we said a number of times that it certainly isn't an individual's fault. So please, could you answer the question, why is it not about willpower? Why isn't it simply the case that, well, I can do it, you can do it. So why can't everyone else do it? And I think that's kind of where a lot of these stigmatizing attitudes come from. I do believe sure. in the fitness industry that people take a lot of pride mm -hmm. over their ability to regulate their own body weight. And we know that image and appearance has become a bit of a social currency. And I think that these things combined may have created sort of fertile soil for stigmatizing attitudes to manifest. Um, so it really would be helpful, I think, for individuals to understand even what do we mean by willpower anyway, because mm -hmm. we throw around this word and I don't think that anyone truly knows what they're talking about, but also perhaps touching on the social determinants of health. Why isn't it yeah. simply a case of individual responsibility and willpower? Yeah. Okay. So this is a big question. So I, I think, you know, willpower, there are certain frameworks that have been developed to kind of describe this. And one of it is, does the individual have a freedom of choice, right? So that that's one component of it. I think the other is, um, can the person identify with that choice? Meaning, was there a direct cause and effect related to that choice? And the last one is, 
they were free of any sort of coercion that would maybe manipulate the outcome of their choice. And so that is a framework that has been validated. I'm going to get the, the dead guy's name wrong, but I think Pate's theory of freedom is, is sort of what's described in that way. And I think if you evaluate obesity based on that framework, right, first off, freedom of choice. So we know that about half of your susceptibility to weight gain is related to your genetics, right? And so there are specific factors that you inherit that you get no choice, no say in. It's kind of luck of the draw. And these factors, they often are a bunch of small variants of DNA will describe sort of your ability to maintain a lean amount of tissue or potentially put on uh, more mass readily. And this has been very well described in the work of Dr. Rahili, who I'm saying his name incorrectly, and Dr. Faruqi of the UK and many others that have looked at the genetics of, of obesity. We know in fact that there are clusters of genes and genetic variations that increase the amount of weight that someone will likely gain in their life. We also know that the same thing is true around leanness. It was just discovered in the last few years, a gain of function mutation in the gene for, that encodes for MC4R, which is a certain neuron, will actually promote leanness. And the opposite is true if you lose function in that. So there are all these different variations of genetics. And also we can talk about epigenetics too, that can out, that, that help to describe one's risk of weight gain throughout their life that are certainly outside of one's control. Now, that's one part of it. The other part of this, I would say is, well, do people have freedom of choice? Can they own the choices or are there societal pressures that influence that? Well, what's the whole purpose of the marketing industry if not to influence choices, right? So, you know, when we talk about the environmental contribution, we have to talk about the elements of that that influence choice. Some of it gets back to the social determinants you mentioned. For someone to be free of choice, to own their choices, they need to have the ability, the finances, the freedom to make those choices. If they are having to work long shifts, if they are having to work multiple jobs, they have stress from other factors of their life, maybe it's very hard to make consistent choices that would help you to maintain a lean body. That's something that we need to consider. Um, if the marketing environment is such that you are constantly hounded by subliminal messages, by advertisements that prime your brain in areas of the brain that are motivated to eat and to seek certain types of uh, foods, does that mean you are fully, are you retaining full agency in making those choices? I think there's good data that suggests otherwise, because there's a reason that we have marketing, but, but I'll leave that to other people to sort of debate. And then sort of the last bit of this is a distinction I think that is important to make, and that is this. Most of the time, the body does a pretty good job regulating weight. Now, there is variability around that, but there it becomes an inflection point and a progression wherein the body's natural system that regulates weight, we call this the homeostatic system. It's located in the hypothalamus of the brain. Um, it's, it loses the ability to regulate the weight in the way that it normally would. And it's that transition period that really is the sort of genesis of obesity. Obesity is the inability for the body's natural system to regulate its body mass any longer, and particularly its fat mass. And so there is an inflection point that we've been able to identify. It's much better described in animals because it's easier to do these sort of um, intricate and elegant studies on them than it is humans, 
that that the body loses that natural ability, that natural feedback, and the no, normal neurohormonal mechanisms that regulate body weight. And so um, that element of it, that, that you're no longer in control of sort of your own biology and what the biology is doing, I think also, once again, is a vote against freedom to choose and to carry out these behaviors in a way that would sort of honor and respect your health completely. Um, so I think that's super important. And I think where a lot of the bias and misunderstanding comes from, I'm gonna steal a quote from Dr. Uh, I don't think he's a doctor, but uh, Danette, which says, people have a particular personal authority about the nature of their experience. And right, any evidence that would trump that experience or any evidence that would support a, a, a different hypothesis, they will just dismiss as unacceptable, right? Because I live a particular way and because I experienced life a particular way, well, obviously everyone else must experience it that way. And right, I think that is a fallacy that we know to be true in many cases for all the reasons I just mentioned. And so I think we have to be very careful in not extrapolating our own personal experiences on others and understand that there's a lot that's at play here that goes into this weight regulation thing. And, and much of it will be very different for other individuals and much of it will be outside of one's control. And so I think that I think those are a lot of important distinctions that don't get talked about at all when we have larger conversations around people's weight. It seems that some people almost take it as a as a personal affront to um, you know to think that we don't have full control and agency over every decision that we could possibly make. Yeah. And they will sometimes criticize uh, these more complex uh, models of, of the drivers and, and regulators of obesity. And, and I'm, I'm curious, you know, how you, how you help to clarify to people that it's not solely out of their control. Like when you're pointing out these, these drivers and the influences that you're not, you're not implying that a person has no agency and they are sort of helpless. And, and that seems to be how people interpret this. When you say there are other factors at play and, and largely the regulation, the regulation is, is not um, done by conscious decision. And they say, well, now you are, you're, you're not empowering people. You're not helping them. You're making them feel as though there's nothing they can do about it. So what is your response to, to that take? Yeah, I think this, this is a really important point. And I get people really worked up when I start to bring these up because they, they bring up the points you just mentioned. So um, I think it's important to understand what are those different systems, right? The different biological systems involved in regulating weight. Um, one that we understand very well at a very basic level because of animal studies and now sort of early studies in humans is the homeostatic system. And this is a system that's primarily centered in the hypothalamus and deep structures of the brain that are outside of the conscious experience, right? And they involve structures and neural circuits in the brainstem as well. The reason that they're hidden deep outside of the conscious experience, right? And we typically associate the conscious experience with sort of the temporal parietal occipital regions of the posterior cortex. That's what like gives us the sensation that we're alive, right? Like that we see here, all these things. The reason they're outside of that, they're located outside of that, is these were very, to eat, to, to regulate weight was a very primitive, basic function of life, right? What are some of the other ones that are thermoregulation, regulating your body temperature, thirst, drinking water to live, you know, eating, we've already talked about, um, sleep, breathing, 
all of these circuits, all of these complex circuits that we would say are fundamental to life exist in deep pr primitive structures that evolved many, 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 many millennia earlier, right? Because these were important and they were almost too important to leave up to sort of this conscious experience uh, to dictate, right? So they, they often function automatically and based on very sort of rigid feedback systems. Can you influence that? What can you do? We can talk about that in a little bit later, but that is an important distinction. Now, the other system that's involved in this and regulating weight is something called sort of the motivation reward system, or the mesolimbic system. And this is involved in that it, it can often be sort of the final step in carrying out sort of a behavior because it's what helps to drive and to regulate the drive and activity of a particular behavior. This can be conditioned, it can be manipulated in a number of ways and in pathologic states, it actually can become quite dysfunctional, which leads to habitual maladaptive behaviors. But in, in motivating people to eat, to help keep them alive, it's very important that we have a very healthy functioning motivation and reward system because that helps encourage food seeking behaviors in times of deprivation and all of this. There's an evolutionary basis to why it's involved, right? The other part, getting at sort of the, um, do we have any agency at all, is, is this sort of executive system. It is what we associate as the sort of conscious experiments. Can I choose to do someone? It's very involved. It's involved in long-term planning, decision-making. It's what everyone experiences as part of sort of being alive and being human, right? And that is a part of it. I'm not saying it's not, right? You obviously have some amount of say in the choices that you make. My argument is this, if the primary centers of body weight regulation are outside of conscious control, both the mesolimbic system as well as the hypothalamic brainstem tracts, and they are operating independently under different set of circumstances and feedback, and they have strong influences, there's a lot of data such they have strong influences on direct hard outcomes of behavior, like what are you going to choose to eat in a given moment or what are you going to do? Then we have to appreciate that it's much more complex than a simple yes or no choice, right? That we often trivialize it and reduce it down to. And so while I would say, yes, agency is involved to some extent that you can affect things, what I would say is it's only part of the whole puzzle. And we have to appreciate the other biological elements that oftentimes can play a bigger role depending upon the circumstances. So um, people often, you know, they say, well, this person lost 200 pounds changing their diet and do on, and that's great. And there are examples. And I think there's a tremendous amount of survivorship bias that exists. When you look at, and I, I, I had a sort of pseudo viral tweet in the past week when I talked about what are the success rates if we're looking at clinical, clinically meaningful amounts of weight lost with sort of uh, appeals to different sort of behavioral outcomes, right? Trying to change people's behavior around the way they eat, around their exercise, around their stress management. If we look at the outcomes of all those studies over many, many years, only about 20 to 25% of people will lose and maintain a clinically significant amount of weight, which in my field, we typically say is 10% weight loss. Only about 20 to 25%. So a minority will be able to lose and maintain a clinically significant amount of weight loss for years. 75, 80% of people, depending upon the cohort you look at, will not. What are we missing? Are these other, is this other group, are they just, are they all just personally failing? Are they all just immoral individuals? I think based on our conversations, we would argue no. And that there is a lot more nuance to that and, and may in fact be that these individuals have potential biological elements or um, 
environmental elements that they don't have as much control over and that are hard to manipulate in a way that's favorable for their health outcomes, right? Um, so I think it's super complex, guys. I, I, you know, it's very complex and it often is inappropriately reduced down to simple choices, which I think serves nobody, does no one favors, except for makes some individuals, as I got back to earlier, feel be better about their personal experience. And like, that's why I can do it. Maybe I'm morally superior than other people. And listen, I, I think that's, that, that sort of perspective is not supported by the evidence. Mm -hmm. Yeah, completely agree. I wonder whether it would be helpful to get into some detail around the pathophysiology of obesity so that individuals can appreciate some of the challenge that may be involved, particularly in regards to the neural hormonal systems and how they may, one, predispose an individual, but also make it more challenging over time, given how these systems change. Yeah, so... Um let's sort of briefly outline what obesity is, and then we can sort of map back towards sort of the pathophysiologic changes that occur that we've identified. So one, obesity is the excess accumulation of fat and at, you know, what we refer to scientifically as adipose tissue. It is also the dysfunction of that adipose tissue that is a hallmark of obesity. So it's not just that we are putting on more fat mass itself, it's also that the fat mass becomes dysfunctional. And that drives a lot of the health impairment. The increase in the amount drives a lot of the mechanical outcomes that we see. So whether or not people are having joint pain, they're having more fatigue, they're having a harder time moving, they're having sleep apnea, et cetera. That is one element. The other element is the sort of physiologic consequences regarding changes in inflammation, changes in metabolic health, cardiovascular health, and the like. And it's that dysfunction that we know is associated with a lot of the long-term risk, cardiometabolic risk, but also increase in risk in cancer and, and, and some of these other complications. So that is important to understand. It's both the increase in the amount, but also the presence of dysfunctional adipose tissue that underlies what we know as medically as obesity. What is happening to support this increase in energy storage and adipose tissue formation in people? So under normal circumstances and normal physiology, there is a system that is centered in the brain that regulates and monitors the amount of energy that's being burned via your total body metabolism and the amount of food you're taking in to balance that out. Homeostasis quite literally means just the balance of a system, right? That's what homeostasis is at a very simple level. And that system is, is, has very exquisite sensors that will manipulate energy intake and energy expenditure to keep a balance in order to keep a, uh, a relative mass and to, to keep a body to be around a particular size. Much of that uh, size determination is genetic, it's genetically based. So like for the same reasons that I'm not six foot 10 uh, is based on the genetics. My parents were six foot 10. That's usually the best predictor. A lot of that has genetics. So how big you are going to be is genetic, um, as we mentioned earlier. And, and so there is a point at which, and this is the part that I think it's hard for a lot of people to reconcile, where enough sort of weight gain exposures environmentally, potentially epigenetic and genetic changes, that the biology becomes pathology, that the homeostatic systems no longer have the appropriate feedbacks to counteract any change to the system. And it is that inflection point, that change, that transition to pathology 
that then leads to things that we are we know are associated with obesity, such as um, food-seeking behavior, such as hunger, such as a lack of satiety. So a lot of these things, and even from a metabolic standpoint, such as a slow metabolism that can be associated with certain forms of obesity. So it is that homeostatic system that goes wrong and the exact triggers and mechanisms that make it go wrong um, can be quite heterogeneous. So this is a part that's hard and people feel like I'm punting. I'm not. We know that infection can cause it to go wrong. We know medication can cause it to go wrong. We know that over the 4,000 um, novel food agents and additives in our modern food system potentially can be involved in that. Right? And there's, we have done very little research on all the different chemicals in our modern foods or that we use in our modern cleaning supplies or that we're breathing in. All of these things have been associated to some extent. To draw lines of causality are very difficult to do at the scale and, and to reflect the heterogeneity that presents. But we know that we've been able to connect a lot of these things to contributing to that pathology developing. And so once that pathology develops, for some people, it can be earlier given certain genetic traits. But once that pathology develops and emerges, then it's off to the races, right? And then the modern environment that is very weight promoting um, really sort of takes advantage of this biology gone wrong. And I think that's the part that people struggle with because then what you're telling them is that the solution to that, the solution is what well, you need to restrict again. If this system is operating on its own instructions, it has its own programming and this programming has been rewritten in the pathological state. Well, this, this sort of tried and true restriction approaches are generally not gonna be effective. And in fact, we know that's the case based on the numbers I mentioned, only about 20% of people were restored. But, but we've continued to give that sort of legacy script its day in court because we didn't know better and we weren't educated enough and not enough people knew about the sort of the science and the nuances of obesity and weight regulation. And so I think it's important to note that it's these biological systems that go wrong and the subsequent output from these systems that have consistent and pronounced effects on things like hunger, food-seeking behavior, lack of satiety, ultimately that can drive um, overnutrition, can drive weight gain, can drive changes to metabolism that all promote an energy surplus. And this is where the calories come into play. And I think the disservice we do is we oversimplify it. We talk about the energy balance and we don't talk about the drivers, the inputs and outputs that really give it life and that really um, appropriately respect what is happening within the individual that begin to paint the picture of wow, there's a lot going on. And maybe not all of it's just as simple as, hey, put that cookie down or whatever that we often make it out to be. Really what I'm hearing is that you are providing this information in order to empower people with the, the knowledge of this really complex system. And when we simplify in, in either direction, when we don't really... Uh, recognize the complexity of the system, we are removing uh, a client's agency. We're not allowing them to make an informed decision because they really don't have uh, a picture of what's going on. And uh, I do want to hear more uh, about the 
the limitations and the lack of efficacy of the just behavioral and dietary interventions that you've mentioned as sort of, you know, being the, um, they're supposed to be like this, you know, uh, like panacea and, and they've been largely ineffective and have potentially even led to furthering weight stigma because they're not effective and because people then tend to, to blame the, you know, um, unsuccessful weight loss maintainers. So what are some of the prior interventions and why haven't they um, been as effective as, as hoped? Yeah. And, and just to quickly touch on something you said, I think absolutely right. When you empower people with information that often aligns with their personal experience, I can tell you, it's like a weight has been lifted. No pun intended. Literally a weight has been lifted from them. In many of these clinical encounters, I've had people break down crying hysterically being like, that's why I've struggled. And like, it's, it's amazing. It's very therapeutic in many ways. People have a much healthier perspective about themselves when you can actually align it with what we know is the case with the science. So that is a very rewarding part of my job and, and is often you know, something they go through. And, and in many cases, a metamorphosis because that's when they get to start to heal is that maybe this whole thing that I've been told my entire life, that's my fault maybe isn't all my fault. And wow, what would that be like? It's really empowering, guys, I'll just tell you. So um, as it relates to the limitations of sort of legacy treatments, right? So classically, we've been telling people, you just got to get into a calorie deficit, energy balance. And I'm not here to dispute the law of thermodynamics. There is validity to all of these things. But as we've already described, it's much more complicated than just calories in, calories out, which a lot of people reduce it down to. The limitations are this. There are typically three sort of different forms of interacting with people to help them with their weight. Usually it's nutrition therapy, which has long been utilized by sort of the medical fields and similar professions. It is sort of exercise therapy or physical activity. And it's sort of comprehensively sort of behavioral therapy, which has been done a lot more um, by both sort of the dietitian as well as sort of the mental health licensed health professionals. Um, so um, what we know is looking at the data as a whole is that the majority of individuals who undergo any type of intervention, be it diet, exercise, behavioral transformation, have a very hard time maintaining any health benefits. Now, that doesn't mean that they can't lose weight. It doesn't mean that they can't receive benefit, health benefits. So I want to be very clear about that. But the maintenance of those health changes is very difficult. And the numbers of people that experience significant weight relapse, if not 100% weight regain are, are significant. And we'll talk about the biology behind that, but, but I think that's important. And the numbers we know even, I mean, these are multi-million dollar studies. These are patients were given tremendous number of amount of support and resources. Even in those settings, the best numbers suggest only about 20 to 25% will lose a clinically significant amount of weight and maintain it for years. But the majority will regain the weight over some period of time. 50% of lost weight is regained within two years, 80% within five. Lost weight of all comers. So it, it, we have to understand the limitations and, and people don't have to believe me, just look at the data. I, like, I wanna be dispassionate, look at what the data represents. There's something clearly missing, the fact that we're not helping a larger percent of people. Now, why is that the case? right? There's been some really cool um, research around this in the last few decades that have looked at why do people gain the weight back? Why can't people seem to reliably keep the weight off and improve their health and reduce the burden of obesity? 
we understand that there is a mechanism that has evolutionary origin that regulates your body weight within a certain boundary. And that lower boundary that is described is primarily driven by a hormone neurocircuit called the leptin melanocortin system. Leptin is a hormone secreted by your fat cells. It's actually secreted in amounts that is representative of how much fat you are holding on you at any given time. That is primarily its purpose to say, hey body, this is how much fat I have. And then the brain says, okay, that's great. This is the amount that's appropriate or it's not appropriate. When you try to reduce your body weight doing some form of restriction, which is a prerequisite, um, the body senses that change in energy status due to a decrease in leptin, due to a decrease in fat mass. And the body enacts changes to get you to gain the weight back due to this homeostatic system. Well, we know that this ancient system that was created as an evolutionary survival mechanism, right? Because our ancestors would have frequent interruptions, their food supply could go days if weeks without eating, needed to have ways to regulate their weight reliably so they wouldn't starve to death. This system was born out of that need, out of that evolutionary need. It turns out it's conserved across the many years and many generations. And not just that, it turns out it's conserved despite someone gaining weight in their life and then trying to lose it. So it's conserved even at higher weights such that in essence, your body is saying this new higher weight is your new normal, right? Because if you try to lose weight, it's gonna trigger that same survival reflex, which ultimately increases hunger, decreases fullness and satisfaction, and actually decreases metabolism. All the things you don't want to have happen when you're trying to lose weight. What the net effect of that is ultimately is that people's weight loss efforts slow down, they plateau, and they eventually gain the weight back. And that's really what describes people's experience with yo-yoing of their weight throughout their life. But what we ultimately know is given the fact that there is this biology that has gone wrong, that this world really is weight promoting at so on so many levels that people's weight trajectories throughout their life typically are upward and are progressive. And the evolutionary biology, this ancient system we inherited is doing us no favors in that it is conserved even as we gain more weight. And that is a reality that we have to deal with. It's a reality that anyone experiencing or trying to undergo significant weight loss will have to deal with. And the, the issue with that is it's not always predictable how strong that evolutionary response will be. And we know it's actually variable across individuals. So one individual may have an easier time losing weight, maybe because that adaptive response is not as potent, whereas someone else it's quite rigid. So even the initial weight loss is, is a struggle. So that is where individual variability, genetics, biology do come back to play a role. And so once again, someone's own conscious experience and their authority around that experience seems to then be able readily extrapolatable to other people. And I think we have to caution because once again, biology, even on the most fundamental levels can vary quite dramatically from one person to the next. And so the, the, the issue is you're dealing with evolution, you know, at the end of the day. And uh, usually when biology um, is not beholden to the whims of, of humans and conscious experience can operate sort of 24 seven without the same level of fatigue, Biology wins out in that and it makes sense, right? You better be on your game, never be tired, never be depressed, never be sleep deprived, never be tempted by any outing with your friends or family. And, and so that's the challenge. The challenge is 
biology gets to, to operate continuously and gets the support of our environment and our society in helping to get you to gain that weight back. And ultimately that's what happens in the majority of people. So there are novel ways of approaching this that still appreciate the importance of lifestyle and behavioral interventions, but understand that it is a component of the overall treatment plan for someone who has a huge, significant contribution from their biology that's gone wrong. So given the limitations that we've discussed, what makes the service at Accomplish Health different? So I, I think, you know, I don't know that we're dramatically different than what sort of the best in class experiences within sort of the BC medicine field offer. And that is this, we offer a comprehensive lifestyle and behavioral approach that is facilitated by our professionals. And that is paired with this very comprehensive biological sort of treatment. And I think marrying the biology with the life experience component really brings the best of both worlds. And what we know is that if you do that, because they're independent and in essence additive in terms of its contributions, people will lose a lot more weight and not only lose weight, but be more reliably keep the weight off. Because once again, part of the medicinal or pharmacotherapy is to attenuate this response that would promote weight regain after weight loss. And so in doing so, it can more reliably help people to achieve greater weight losses, as well as, as we know, based on the clinical research, better health improvement, which is a critically important point that often does not get discussed. There's sort of this myopic perspective around everything's weight related. Well, actually a lot of it should be around health gain and anything you're doing should be viewed on balance around the health gain and the and that and you know this is where I say with people um, your approach may be great for you and improve your health and be sustainable but if it causes severe distress in someone else it's probably not appropriate for them and so it's a balancing of all these things and this is why working with experts is important because oftentimes they have the knowledge or experience to help you find that way that can be meaningful to you but ultimately you know, it has to be sustainable, it has to be done for the long term, like any good intervention. And this is what I tell people all the time who say, Dr. Robert, I have to take medication the rest of my life. Anything that's effective at improving your health long term has to be maintained long term to continue that health benefit, to support that health benefit. The same is true around dietary approaches, same is true around physical activity. You will lose some degree of that and the benefit of that when you go back to your baseline behavior function, right? And, and so um, my, my, I think a lot of the concern around the medicalization of, of obesity is that somehow we're failing you know, health and sort of health liberties. And I, I think that's a disservice to people. I think I just tweeted about this actually, that I think we're causing a lot of harm if we know that in medicalizing something, calling it a disease, saying it's a real disease that has real treatments that are comprehensive and personal. If we do that and it helps improve people's quality of life, it helps to improve their health outcomes. It helps to do all sorts of things that would benefit them that we can measure. Then why is that inappropriate? Why isn't that actually very appropriate? And why aren't we doing it? And so that, that's, that to me, you know, what does the data show? And, and really a comprehensive approach in many ways can help people achieve a lot of those outcomes. 
It sounds analogous to um, treatment for mood disorders that would include both a you know cognitive behavioral therapy component as well as pharmaceutical treatment. You know, someone taking an SSRI, and perhaps it's not as familiar and it's not as normalized, and it doesn't fit within the narratives of um, you know personal choice and blame that is is so popular in the U.S. And I would like to hear a little bit more about how some of these more novel therapies work in terms of the pharmacological treatments. Yeah, I, I mean, I think it's an apt analogy, especially knowing the stigma that is related and continues to be associated with mental health issues, right? And that when you look at the data, almost always the best outcomes come from a combination approach, right? And that's, that's understanding the nuance that there are many elements that sort of make up this person's struggle in their health condition. And, and, the, and so I, I think that's super, super important to recognize. Um, as it relates to sort of novel, novel therapies. So there are two sort of biological, categor- biological treatment categories that we talk about as it relates to obesity treatments. Um, there's the pharmacotherapy, which is really what I do. Is it's the applying sort of evidence-based medicines as part of a comprehensive approach. And then there's also surgery. And I would mention that none of these, as we are commonly talking about it, even at the highest levels within my field, none of these are mutually exclusive. They're almost always benefiting people in a combination approach. So um, surgery has its own considerations and that's a whole nother podcast you could talk about. But in terms of the medicines and the way they work, the legacy me- uh, medications, um, a lot of them worked by doing certain things to decrease like energy intake. So like the classic example would be um, Orlistat was one of, the, one of the first long-term FDA approved medications for obesity it actually worked by causing some degree of fat malabsorption. So you're just not getting fat as many fat calories. And that didn't work as well. It had a very modest effect. And as we became smarter around the science of obesity and these different regulatory centers, talking about the, um, the homeostatic system and the mesolimbic, we realized that you could target receptors within these systems that modulate their effect, that modulate the system's effects and its outputs, and that subsequently influence weight-related behaviors or food-seeking behaviors or the like. And in doing so, what we're in essence doing is help to correct a lot of the biology that is going wrong when people have um, obesity and elevated body weight. And and so one of the novel therapies that's got a lot of attention um, is semaglutide. And semaglutide is something called a GLP-1 receptor, glucagon-like peptide receptor 1. And it basically is an analog to a hormone we make naturally in our small intestine. And what it does is it has a lot of really interesting mechanisms, but most of the mechanisms around weight have now been attributed to its effects on the brain. And in fact, effects on the brain at endpoints and receptors involved in the homeostatic system, involved in food seeking, motivation and reward pathways. And in doing so, you see things like, it's amazing, people's health behaviors improve, that that treating the biology somehow improves their their moral standing, I, I joke, but like they now have greater control over eating quantities. They now feel more in control of their food choices. They now have um, less hunger and more satisfaction with a given meal. They feel less drawn to processed foods, high fatty foods. And that all of that is now experienced as a reflection of their biology in many ways starting to act more normal and regular. And that's what these treatments are trying to do. It's not changing their moral standing. And I joke about that. It's really just 
helping their biology to work better for them, not against them, which is often what's happening in the disease of obesity. And so as a reflection of that, I can tell you in some of my follow-up appointments, I will tell you, people will just start bawling hysterically because they feel like I've never realized how much I was suffering this whole time. I feel so liberated. I can go down the food aisle and not think about that, that newest chip on the food. I've had, I mean, I'm literally telling you, paraphrasing of what patients have told me. And, and so it's marrying that hard data that we know from the science with my own clinical experience of seeing it change people's lives, change people's perspectives and experience in life that has been so rewarding. And it's why I'm a huge advocate now for these evidence-based approaches, because I've seen at an individual level how transformative they can be and why I get really frustrated when people once again sort of make this out to be this healthism to be so, so a moral sort of issue when no, like if people can dramatically benefit if their behaviors change in a positive direction that help improve their health outcomes, why would we argue against that guys? I, it makes no sense to me. And in fact, in some ways I would say it's harmful. It really sounds as though these drugs work um, as sort of equalizers. Exactly. That's a great way to frame it. Yeah. And, and when you bring up, you know, the idea that, you know, that people, um, people are resistant to acknowledging obesity as a disease because of their concerns that this is going to further weight stigma. And I think one thing that I'm um, taking away from our conversation is that, in fact, it's the fact that just disease is stigmatized and health is a pan value. And that's really the underlying issue. And that if we can get to a place where we can remove those things and we just say that obesity is a disease and that doesn't make this person a bad person or, or, or lacking moral imperative or, or having less uh, social currency, but it's something that we can treat to improve their quality of life. And we can do it with medications that can help to equalize their experience and help them navigate a very challenging environment. That, that is really one way that we can challenge weight stigma because we are removing these sort of moral um, and socioeconomic hierarchies in a way, really just internally without necessarily changing the external environment. Although there is still room for that to change, but um, I hope that listeners are coming away with a greater understanding of your perspectives and, and you know, why you're doing what you're doing and that we can, in fact, marry obesity treatment and, challenge, and challenging weight stigma. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't know that I could have said it better myself. So uh, bravo to you. That was great. I wonder if you have any advice on how we might go about identifying weight bias within ourselves. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that one's tough, right? Because we're not always aware and, and these can be subtle. And, and so I think I even check myself at times. Um, one of the first things that I made it a really, you know, it was really important to me to address in terms of my own implicit biases around weight issues was how I talked about it. That to me was like a very first important step. And so I, I'm a huge advocate of using first uh, person first language as it relates to someone dealing or living with obesity, instead of calling them the obese man or obese woman, or um, they're not defined by their disease, right? That, that's super important. I can't, I can't say that enough. Their self-worth, who they are, their contributions to society, their family, to their own life is completely independent of that, of their health struggles. And I think it's important that we recognize that and we give it and we honor that sort of distinction. 
because the more that we sort of subconsciously say terms sort of off the cuff, I see it all the time, even people in medical journals that should know better, people that are obesity researchers do this. Oh, the obese woman came to the office or whatever. It has, it feeds that sort of implicit bias that they are somehow defined by, by a real struggle that but we, as we already discussed today, a lot is outside of their control. And so it, it, it's not fair to them. And I think it feeds that system. And so just starting with the way that we talk about it, using person first language, person with obesity, people living with obesity, woman, man with obesity, I think is important. And it helps to start making, you know, it helps you to start thinking about it and framing it in a way that creates that distinction, I think is really important, right, to, to um, stop feeding into that implicit bias. And, and so for me, that's been hugely helpful, um, because then it also just gets me thinking every day about how I frame it, how I talk to people about it. And um, yeah, I, I think that's an important place to start. We've touched on intervention sort of at the individual level. I wonder if you have sort of any opinions as to what you would like to see change in terms of a, a broader um, societal approach to help create an environment that is more conducive to health promotion. Yeah, I think so. Part of it is recognizing those contributors and having meaningful conversations around it is unquestionable that the modern food environment is hazardous to our health in so many ways, not the least of which is that it promotes weight gain across a population, right? It's estimated that by 2030, 80% of the US population will have a weight issue, 50% will have obesity, meet the clinical criteria. That is, a, that is an issue that is affecting us that is pretty much a modern issue when you look at the scale of the issue. Now, obesity has always existed in human history, but the, the scale of the problem has never been on this level. And it's only getting worse based on all of the prevalence data that we've collected in the US. Much of that happens to do with the way that our built environment um, is constructed, the way that we market aggressively to people of all ages, the way that we make these sort of biologically irresistible foods, super convenient, hyper affordable, um, delivered right to your front door whenever you want it, right? Like that's the environment we live in. I think meaningful change within the food environment, which may be wishful thinking because it requires a level of political will that we may or may not have in the, at the current moment, uh, is it going to be important? And some people that I have tremendous respect for who, you know, are really tasked with thinking about these big issues at a high level advocate for a, uh, as part of a bridge to that sort of reimagining of the food environment, maybe there are things we can do around food reformulation where we can leverage our under, deep understanding of nutrition science to reformulate foods in a way that don't sacrifice elements of palatability, but deliver foods in a much um, more weight favorable package based on our understanding of how nutrition science influences food intake and the like. And I think I'm open to that being a possibility. Um, I, I am always skeptical of anything that sort of gives uh, individuals who have very different incentives to control in that regard. Um, but I understand that's a lot of how our, our society operates. So I think for a, to make a huge difference, we're going to have to do things at a very macro scale, which is going to require collaboration and sort of common uh, consensus and appreciation for the drivers. So having these conversations about the different elements that contribute is important. And then as with all things in healthcare, 
as with all things in our society, there's a huge um, portion of it that relates to um, people being impacted differentially based on their societal status, based on their zip code, where they grew up, so on and so forth. These so so you know social determinants of health, and I think uh, addressing health inequities, um, understanding the different determinants that influence outcomes as well. Getting back to sort of the the theory of, of freedom, if a if a person does not have the ability to make certain choices because of constraints of their life, it's not very fair. And we should be doing a better job to help support them in their efforts. If not, I think we are going to really struggle making a meaningful change uh, at a public level and a sort of uh, for the public good and at a public health level. So I think as it relates to the environment, we have to look at these key contributors. It's unquestionable that food and the modern food system is contributing. We have to sort of think novelly about how we can reimagine it and properly incentivize the right kind of food and food behaviors. And then also, uh, you know, what can we do to address inequities in society? That's going to have as big, if not more of an effect on certain outcomes. Um, once again, weight being just one of these outcomes. So um, it's a huge problem that has, that there are a lot of, uh, there are, there's a lot that goes into it and that's going to influence it. And I hope people start to appreciate the complexity of the issue here, even just from some of these conversations, which I'll tell you are just really surface level. It gets even more in depth on the biology and on sort of the environmental aspects. But I think it's, it's starting to hopefully, um, you know, describe and illustrate the, the issues that we face. And um, if people are more educated, we can do more and we can raise more awareness and hopefully demand more change. And quite often we're talking about, um, you know, changes for the future to create an environment that can be more supportive of our health. Um, and we might not discuss quite as often what we can do in the present moment, in the current situation, to create a more inclusive environment for people in a variety of body sizes, and I even say body configurations, because we talk so much about body size, but you know, there are people that might be missing limbs and things like that, or have yeah. different abilities. Um, so I'm curious in terms of um, the met within the medical community and within you know the community of, of health um, professionals, uh, how can we create a more inclusive space and, and a space that feels um, safer and and potentially more more navigable by people who might be in larger bodies? Yeah, I mean, so this isn't my area of expertise, but I'll give you my opinion as a person who, tries to empathize with the experience of others. I try really hard. I'm not always successful, but I try really hard. Is that um, I think we have to talk about the people for whom they're being directly impacted and we have to hear directly from them. I think if we try to assume what's best for other people, getting back to one of the main issues with obesity and we try to assume based on our own experiences, we're likely going to miss the mark and fail these individuals because we can almost never account for all the different aspects of their life and the way in which they interact with those various factors. So getting these people involved, getting advocates who are dealing with it in their daily life and, and having a seat at the table during these discussions is I think gonna be critically important. And um, you know that's my sort of take on this. I think we have to do that. And, and so whether it's people of different body sizes and relating their experience, people of, of different backgrounds, ethnicities, cultural differences, describing how their culture, society perspective influences their interactions, it's going to be so important. And so only, frankly, 
in my opinion, the only way we get to honor all sorts of people in, in a meaningful way. I just think that that is um, really emphasizing, you know, the need for a client slash patient centered approach. And that at the end of the day, we're working with people um, and their needs, their experiences are going to be unique. And um, we, we have a duty to listen and to empathize and meet them where they are and, um, you know, help them in the way that they have decided is best for them. And stop assuming that we know best. Right, exactly. <laughs> If anyone listening would like to keep up to date with your work, where would be the best place for them to follow you? Yeah, so um, Michael Albert MD on all my social. So I'm pretty active on Twitter and TikTok and um, and then Accomplish Health. Um, so accomplish.health is our website. So um, if you are interested in working with us, we aren't operating in every state, um, but in uh, 14 states at this time with many more to come. So um, we would, would love to work with you and help you know, we, we, as you mentioned earlier, we, we love to partner with our patients and really um, find meaningful ways to change their life. Like that's important for us. Um, it is not prescriptive in that way. It is very collaborative. Um, and, and that's important to us. So either at Accomplish Health or on my social, Michael Albert MD. Awesome. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for having me guys. Appreciate it. Thank you so much for listening to the Consilience podcast. If you found this episode helpful and you know someone who also would benefit, then please do share this episode with them. And if you're looking for more support, check out my coaching, mentoring and educational offerings by looking at my website, which is linked in the show notes. Until next time.